Tonight's reading from the New Testament is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 26 to 39, and is on page 4 of your bulletin. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And, what, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me as we pray? Each of us here before you, God, each of us with our own fears, our own concerns, but standing before you and this living word, we're filled with hope that you'll now come and meet us. And we thank you in advance for your son Christ, whose spirit is present with us. In your name, amen. Well, this evening we come to one of the most inspiring passages in the book of Romans, if not in the entire Bible, what we just read. And it speaks of a love that's so fierce, of a love that's so faithful, a love that's so passionate, a love that's so persistent. And we have all these, you know, wonderful songs Ain't no mountain high enough. I'll cross the desert. I'll swim the deepest sea. All those sentiments, as wonderful as they are, they pale in comparison 
to what God declares to us this evening. Now, for the last couple chapters, the Apostle Paul has been seeking to build the confidence of believers, to build our confidence before life and before God. Uh, He's done that by reminding us that the source of our acceptance before God, our justification, our righteousness before God, is His Son. He's done that by telling us that the source of our hope to change, to become morally beautiful people, what the Bible would call sanctification, is rooted in Christ, His Son, who lived the life that we long to live. And He's done it by reminding us to whom we belong and how we belong to Him, that we've been adopted by God through Christ His Son, His one and only Son. So all these things He's been pouring into us, you have been justified. You are changing and being sanctified. You've been brought into the family of God. And now He speaks to us of the source of our unwavering help and His unstoppable love. So let's look at those two things together. The unwavering help of God and the unstoppable love of God. Now, this first part of the passage takes us to the idea of prayer. That's what he's talking about, God's Spirit and prayer. And prayer is perhaps, um, in the spiritual battle that we fight, the greatest field of engagement. And it's the one that, when that field grows silent, really unnerves us. It really shakes our faith. A couple um, weeks ago, Meg and I went to see a film called Silence. Some of you may have seen it. Um, it's a film that's getting a lot of attention. And uh, it's, it's a, a powerful film. It's a complex film. It's a disturbing film. It tells the story of two 17th century Jesuit missionaries who go to find their mentor who is apostate. They go to Japan looking for him amidst persecution in Japan at that time. And the film's been applauded for the way it examines religious faith and how it has many layers to it, how it's vulnerable, how it's ambiguous in the face of persecution. And I'll say as I came out of the film, it's made me think quite a bit of what it would be like to truly endure persecution and how would my faith be? It's driven me to those questions. But it also reflects a typical modern view about religious faith. One reviewer put it this way. The film reflects the cultural elite, the secular establishment who always prefer Christians who are vacillating, unsure, divided, and altogether eager to privatize their religion. I think that's a fair critique of what the film presents. And in addition to that, the Japanese church, the Japanese Christians, while some are presented as persevering, uh, many are presented as gullible, um, fearful, weak, having been someone that, uh, been someone that has studied um, the faith of the church in China, 
uh, I was longing in the film for more of the true stories of the courage of the Japanese church. But the greater theme, well, I'm telling you this, the greater theme is the movie title, right, Silence. What do you do in the face of suffering when you feel like God is silent? And Paul was no stranger to that. You can read about Paul's sufferings in the book of Corinthians, where he'll say things like, well, I, you know, I received 40 lashes five times. I was beaten with rods three times. I was almost stoned to death. He goes on through the list of sufferings. And that's what makes what he writes here, I think, so precious. Because he is someone that has had to cry out to God in times of suffering. And instead of silence, this is what he has come to know. That God the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And that word groanings is what you probably think it means. Those times where you don't know what to say. Where you're so overcome with despair or confusion or sadness or doubt. And what we're told here is that the Father at that point doesn't stay up in heaven quiet. He goes to work. He sends his spirit to search your heart. He searches the deepest part of your heart, the things that you don't know what to say, and he then takes that back to the throne of God, and he intercedes for us on his behalf. Have you ever had someone in your life that knew you so well, you didn't have to say anything? You could just sit there, and they knew and they understood. This is the understanding of God that Paul is giving us. You see, the inability to know what to pray is part of the weakness in life. We're going to continue to face it. In fact, sometimes we're probably too quick to think we know what to pray. We will face that. But the truth is, even when we feel like we have no words to pray, we needn't feel that we can't pray. Because God's Spirit will enable us to speak to him. The Spirit of a God translates your moans and your groans to God. And so first, we understand that God has given us unwavering help through his Son and through his Spirit. But second of all, we're told about unstoppable love. And there are three things here. The good that God assures us, the salvation that God accomplishes, and the obstacles that God overcomes. Let's unpack those together. First of all, the good that he assures. Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Which is to say, whether it be evil you face, hatred, suffering, illness, your own sin, even death, that God is determined to convert that to good in your life. Even when you screw up, that he is determined, this is the kind of love he has for his children, to turn that into good. And what's the evidence of that? It's in verse 29. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he's saying, if you want to know how determined God is to converting good in your life, 
see that he has given you his son. The best thing that life can ever give you is a person. It's the best thing that life can give you is a person. And God has given you the best person, his beloved son, your redeemer, your lover, your creator. And yet there are three important qualifiers to this we have to look at. First of all, Paul doesn't say that all things work good by themselves. He says that they, God works all things good. That's very different than the view that, or sentiment you'll sometimes hear. You know, everything will just work out okay. I've had people say that to me, where I'm sharing some struggle, and they'll say, well, you know, things will just work out. Or the belief that fate or chance or kismet or whatever it would be will turn things. That's not what Paul is saying here. Children of God aren't trusting in some vague sense that things will just turn out okay. That's not their trust. They're trusting in a Father who is active in all things. That's what he's saying here. That God is working good. But that doesn't mean happiness and easiness. The good that Paul is talking about is not that, because later in the passage he quotes from Psalm 44, where it says, for, your, for you, Lord, we've been slaughtered all day long. You know, we've been killed. We've been persecuted. Paul isn't saying that Christians will experience a higher percentage of pleasantness over unpleasantness. That's not what he's saying. That's not what the Scripture teaches. In fact, you might find when you become a Christian, life gets tougher because God decides not to leave you alone. You know, he begins to test you and grow you. So the first thing is understanding under this that God is the one that works, but the purpose of the good also we have to see. What is the good? Verse 28 is further defined by verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And there it is. The good promised is not a happy life. It's a godly character. That's the good that he's talking about. I think many times when we read this passage, we think the good is circumstantial prosperity. Like things are going to go bad for a while, but then they're going to get good. And true, God loves to bless his children. He loves to shower us with blessing. But we have to understand the good he's talking about here is character being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what he's saying. And this is the place where you and I most stumble. I think if we, and I've found this as I pastor people, this issue of what is the good is where we stumble. You think about how many times that our faith has, you know, broken through the guardrails and gotten difficult because God didn't give to us some good that we had longed for or we thought that we had persevered long enough to have. You know, it might be, you know, I didn't get into the school I wanted. My move to Washington has basically been a flop. I don't have the marriage I want. I'm still single. Whatever it is, that good that you and I hold in our hearts. But what he has promised is not everything that we want, but everything we need for life, and as the verse goes, and godliness. It's both and together. So he ain't going to give you anything in your life that won't contribute to your godliness, and he won't withhold anything in your life that will contribute to your godliness. This is the good that God has committed to give. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said, Everything is needful, but he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. That's basically what Paul is telling us. 
And in our sane selves, we understand this. I mean, if you had a choice, think about a child in your life that you love. Maybe it's your own son and daughter or a niece and nephew, whoever. And you had a choice between them being wealthy, always secure, you know, a great job, some notoriety. If you had a choice between that, but they're also, by the way, a brat, they're also selfish, you had a choice between that kid and the kid who goes through adversity but is kind and is heroic. I know which one you would choose. I hope I know. It's that second one. Why would God choose anything less for you and I? That's what he's after, this good. But lastly, the qualifier is to whom does this promise belong? It doesn't belong to everybody. It belongs to those who love God and those that are called according to his purpose. That's two ways to describe the same person. Those that love God and those that have been called according to his purpose. Which leads us to the second point of unstoppable love. The salvation he accomplishes. What is the ground of certainty that you and I have? How can you be certain? Well, we get this chain of salvation. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Let's break that down just for a moment and understand it in terms of unstoppable love. I don't want us to understand it just in terms of theology. That's important. But how does it figure into unstoppable love? Those he foreknew, what does that mean? That translates into unconditional love. That word that's used there reaches back to the Old Testament where it talks about the way God had special love, covenant relational affection for his people, Israel. And so this isn't the idea of God knows about me, it's God knows me. And if you looked at the usage of it throughout the New Testament as well, you see that basically the idea being conveyed is foreloved. That's what foreknew is. Those that God foreloved. So you might say at some point, God, how can you love me knowing the life that I've lived? And he would answer, don't you know, child, I loved you before you lived. I loved you unconditionally. Then he says predestined. That's determined love. Now, we'll get in, we're, next week we're going to talk about God's sovereignty and choice, so I'm not going to go into all the questions here. But it means just what it appears, that God determines beforehand his steadfast love. Humanity in itself has forfeited God's love through its rebellion, through our failure to love him and love our neighbor. And yet God sovereignly sets his love upon a multitude without number, as the book of Revelation would say. But it's not God looking ahead and seeing that you would choose to love him or believe in him. There's nothing unconditional about that. And God doesn't need that information. He already has it. It's God sovereignly setting his affection on people. Thirdly, those he called, that's effective love. In the Bible, there's calling, meaning general invitation. The general invitation that God sends out to all humanity, come to me. But as we see it listed here in this chain of salvation, it means something different. It's talking about effectual calling, meaning a calling that yields life and faith. We might think about the account in the Gospels where Jesus calls forth Lazarus from the grave. 
Lazarus is dead, and Jesus calls out, and he comes out. That's the calling. And then fourthly, a qualifying love, those that are justified. While God chooses us apart from our merit, you know, God cannot love evil. He cannot love sin. He loves holiness. And so what he does with his children is he justifies them. He makes them righteous, so they become rightly the object of his love. And lastly, a complete love, glorified. And here I want you to notice that Paul has been using the past tense, and the work is so certain he uses it even of glorification. Glorification is future. Glorification is when you and I are perfected in who we should be, sinless, you know, without illness, without sickness, when all the bad's gone away and we're dwelling with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what it means to be glorified, but he talks about it in the past tense. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been glorified in God's eyes. The deal is that done. That's how he is committed. And so as you and I look back down this chain of salvation, you can see how it would build our confidence. What else does God have to do to convince you and I that he's committed to our good when he's done all that? Past, present, future. The salvation that he brings. And to say he did this all by giving his son. Which leads us to the last point. The obstacles that God overcomes. Paul then, from this point, goes on to name virtually every fear that you and I could have. You can just look down that list, right? And if your fear isn't listed, at least it's not as bad as the ones on this list. I mean, he says, Judgment Day. All of us one day will give an account for the things that we have thought, said, and done. I mean, I know... It, it, we long for that, too, regarding other people that have hurt us and that don't get justice in this world. We think, when will a day come? The cry for justice is appropriate. God has it, too. All of us will stand before God. And I'll tell you, that works into our psyche. We can, you know, kind of dismiss that. I, I've said this before, but it's been some years I've mentioned this. In my, you know, basement growing up, um, and I grew up, I told you, in an agnostic family, but my mother bought this poster and uh, it went in my basement, and it was these sort of like Ziggy cartoon characters. You know what those look like? And it was this scaffolding with ramps like this. And people were going up the ramps, and they're going up the ramps. They're just going up. But then all of a sudden, the, the planks are gone, and they can see what's happening. And at the very top, some people are flying off to heaven, and others are falling into a big pile. And underneath, the poster said, Judgment. It's so curious to me, that was in my basement. You know, I still don't know why and how, I, you know, what it was, it was there. But people's response to that would be like, you know, it was always like, ha, ha. You know, because on one hand we laugh it off, and the other hand we go, and it works into our deepest part. You know, Mike and I were having this conversation a couple of weeks ago of reoccurring dreams. And I, you know, I'm, I can't remember, I think I said this once as well, but that, uh, you know, one of my reoccurring dreams is that dream where I dream that I had a class that I was supposed to take for graduation, and I didn't even know or I forgot I was supposed to take the class for graduation, but it's too late now, and I hadn't been going the whole semester. Mike was like, I have that dream too. 
You know, you probably have your own version, but all of those, some of you are shaking your head, right? But what's at that? It's this idea, I don't measure up and I know it. All of us have it in our conscience. Paul mentions that fear, but how does he answer it? Who will bring any charge against the elect? The righteous Son of God becomes the one that answers all those charges. Jesus was taking that science class for me, right? This idea that he takes that. And then Paul mentions the fear of suffering and danger. Sickness and emotional distress. Hunger. And some of our friends here that are homeless, they don't have to imagine what it's like to feel hunger, to be without shelter. And then he mentions violence, the sword. Do you ever fear violence? And then lastly, he mentions spiritual oppression as he talks about powers and principalities. All these things, but what's at the root of those? It's really not the fear itself. It's that I'm going to be alone in the fear. That I'm going to be separated. And that's where Paul goes after. He understands it's that feeling, I will be separated. That I'll be cornered alone in the dark. Uh, I'd mentioned a couple months ago, having watched the series Stranger Things. Some of you had watched it. Uh, I think there's going to be a season two, but, you know, there's this upside-down world, this dimension, and it's this very dark, morbid dimension, and this mother loses her son. I'm not totally ruining it, okay? Mother loses the son, but then, right, she she finds a way into that world with the local sheriff because she's going to come after him into that dark place, How much more? Of course, if you're a mother or just someone that cares, you go, of course I'd find that place. Whatever I had to do to find that place. How much more the God of heaven and earth, the Father who gave his Son, how much more will he find himself into your dark place? Whatever it would be. Rulers, angels, height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I need to open our eyes and see light in that place because he's there. Because Jesus went into that place. Jesus went into that dark place ahead of you as he suffered and died. And because he conquered, we are super conquerors. We're more than conquerors. This is amazing. It's perplexing. I mean, if we take seriously the things that this mentions, trouble, famine, persecution, death, all those things, could you imagine being in that situation going, I'm more than a conqueror even here? Because the Son of God had been there. One of the bright points of the film, Silence, was um, there were three Japanese Christians that were... um, being persecuted, called out among the number, and called to deny their faith, and they refused to. And so they were placed on three crosses uh, right on the shore, and as the ocean would come in uh, and the tide would come in, they would just be deluged with water. You know, they would just be over and over for hours deluged with water, with nothing to eat. And, you know, day after day, one would die, and at the very end, this older saint, you know, 
you can tell he's on his last breath and the sun has come out and faintly you hear him just singing this hymn. And there are the authorities sitting there and the people from the village and they're just watching him sing this hymn. I don't know if that really happened or not, but I know it happened in church history because it's happening now. People that have understood that they were more than conquerors and they sang until the end. They persevered until the end. So as I ask myself the question, you know, am I going to make it? Are you going to make it? My answer to that is the love of Christ. Will God stop loving me? No. Will God stop persevering with me? No. This is our confidence, my friends. Let's pray. Father, we extol you. We marvel. We give you praise. No one loves like you. No one is loved like Christ. Thank you that you care about our dark place. Thank you that you have provided your spirit. Help each of us now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Glenn. There is a 